The gospel is the good news that by faith alone, your sin is credited to Jesus Christ. And by grace alone, his active obedience is credited to you. That's the good news. That's the great news. The great news is that by faith alone, and by no merit, and by no work, your sin is placed upon Christ, who died in order to kill it, and to pay the full penalty that each and every one of us deserve to pay ourselves forever in eternal judgment. And that by grace and grace alone, not because of anything that you are or anything that you did or anything that you ever could do, he chose to impute his active obedience, his perfect obedience to God's holy law and give it to you so that you are clothed in his righteousness. Brothers and sisters, that's the gospel. The gospel is not that God treats you as if you have never sinned. That is not the gospel. <laughs> he doesn't treat you like you've never sinned. He treats you like you have sinned and that you deserve to pay for that sin forever, but that Christ interceded and paid it for you so that he can treat you the way that he would treat his perfect holy son. That's the gospel. Now, why is that so important? Because literally, heaven and hell are at stake. There is nothing more important. And because there's nothing more important, there is no target more strategic for the evil one. The highest prized target is the gospel. It's not Christ, because Christ can't be taken out. Christ can't be defeated. Christ can't be stopped. But when you look at the highest value target for the world, the flesh, and the devil, it's a proper understanding of the gospel, and because Satan is behind the work of Antichrist, and Antichrist is not an opposite Christ. Antichrist comes as an imposter Christ. There are imposter Christs and imposter churches and imposter gospels, and they are flourishing. They're successful, and they're everywhere. 
And people that we know and love are influenced by them. And if there's anything that would conjure up legitimate, righteous indignation and anger, it is when somebody seeks to warp and distort and pervert and reverse and destroy the gospel. And that's why Paul is angry. The Apostle Paul wrote what you have in your Bible as the book of Galatians. If you haven't yet done that, please open to that short letter. The letter to the Galatians. For the next 10 weeks, we're gonna be studying this. The series is called True Gospel. There will be 10 sermons, the first four focused on grace, that's the dominant theme in chapters one and two, and the next six from chapter three until the end will be on the Holy Spirit. Grace, the Spirit, the Epistle to the Galatians, the series is True Gospel, the text of scripture this morning that we're gonna look at is Galatians 1, 1 to 9, titled the sermon, a gospel of grace. The gospel is the good news. That's what gospel means. It means good news. That by faith alone, through the unsolicited regeneration that the Holy Spirit brings, and not by any works or merit, your sin and all of the penalty that was due to you as a consequence of the sin that you had incurred is credited to or imputed to Christ, and by grace alone and not by any action that you have performed, the active righteousness of Christ, his perfect law-keeping as the better Adam is credited or imputed to you. That's the gospel. Now, at the outset, don't confuse the response of faith with the requirement of faith. Paul is trying to make this point very clear to the Galatians and I would like to try to make it clear to you. The point of the letter is the point of the sermon. The point of the passage is the point I'm trying to make for us today, don't confuse the response, which is faith and repentance and obedience and holiness and fruit bearing. Don't confuse the, the response to faith with a requirement for faith. To be saved, I must do these things to qualify me as a recipient of the good news of the gospel. The justified person is going to respond in faith and repentance and love and obedience, but that is because, listen very carefully to this, because it's one of those statements that rightly understood will clean off the dirty windshield of your theology so you can see more clearly through it to the gospel, and it is simply this, that regeneration precedes faith. Regeneration, the bringing to life of the deadness of your spiritual condition, 
the reviving, the resurrection spiritually, the flesh heart versus the stone heart, the eyes opening, the new creation being formed, is a work of God the Holy Spirit that precedes faith. You can't have faith if you're dead. You have to be alive to have faith. And even then, you couldn't choose faith. Faith is given to you, we read, as a gift from God. But regeneration precedes faith. You are alive in the Spirit of God and therefore able to understand and believe and obey. But it is not a requirement. It's not a work that precedes regeneration. And to confuse that is to turn the gospel inside out. And there are many people in many places who have been subjected to a great degree of carefully orchestrated teaching aimed at turning the gospel inside out. There are whole denominations built on it. There's a whole cultural Christianity. There is a whole Christian fill in the blank set of programs that are aimed at doing this. It's no small matter, and that's why Paul is so exercised about it. So, who is Paul writing to? He is writing to a group of house churches in Galatia. There's not just one church, there are multiple churches. They would have met in small groups. They're all over the region of Galatia. Galatia was a province landlocked in the middle of Asia Minor in the Roman Empire where present-day Turkey is and the region around the capital of Ankara. So if you want a little geographic sort of a picture of where this is going, it's going to the churches in the region of Galatia or the Gauls as they were called. It's in that area right in the middle of Asia Minor, present-day Turkey, close to the capital city of Ankara. It's an ancient city. It's a massive city today, and it was a relatively large city in those days as well. Paul was always strategic in where he did his ministry and where he sent his letters. He wasn't concerned with going to the rural areas. He wasn't concerned with the country uh, outside the metropolis. He knew that if he could influence the cities and the metropolitan areas, he could influence the world. So he's writing to the house churches in and around this large and influential city in the province of Galatia. You may recall from our previous messages that the gospel has already gone forth from Jerusalem to Judea and to Samaria and now to the ends of the earth. It has reached the Gentiles. And some of the people who were there at that day when Peter was preaching his sermon or when the people who were filled with the Holy Spirit were giving the gospel, they would have been there from this area of Galatia. They get saved, they bring it back there. We know that because Paul visits the region on his missionary journeys when he goes to bring the gospel and to strengthen existing churches. And now, early on, maybe just a couple of decades after Christ rose and ascended, he is sending them back a letter, and the letter to these churches is bold. Now, I want you to notice that Paul is not angry with the Galatian believers themselves. 
While the tone is bold and while Paul is angry, I don't think he's angry at the believers. He's surprised by them, he's disappointed in them, he's confused by them, he's saddened by them, but he's not really angry with them. He's angry with the false teachers. So if you wanna direct your anger, don't direct it to the poor person who's gotten swindled by somebody, but somebody's gotten conned, somebody who's gotten tricked. Instead, with grace, come alongside them and say, I love you enough to say, you have been led down this path and it is just wrong, but you wanna save up your anger for somebody? You wanna spare your ammo for a worthy target? Aim it at the false teachers the pastors and purveyors of false doctrine that are trying to work their way in all of the time to lead people astray. We're not angry with the person who got conned, we're angry with the con man. And Paul is angry at the con man. And he has two main points here in the first nine verses. The first is that there is only one God, we'll see that in verses one through five, and secondly, that there is only one gospel, and we'll see that in verses six through nine. There is one God, and there is one gospel. Please follow along as I read in Galatians, beginning at the start. Written by Paul, the apostle, likely the very first inspired letter that he wrote a couple decades after Christ ascended to a church that has been victimized by false teachers. Verse 1, under the heading One God, Paul, an apostle. By that he meant that he met the requirements to be an apostle. They were pretty simple requirements in those days. You had to be a disciple of Jesus Christ who had met the risen Lord. You had to have been called directly by him to go and do the ministry and you had to show the signs of apostleship. The miraculous signs that were limited during the apostolic age. Tongues and healings miracles that were there to authenticate the apostolic ministry. And Paul, though he was different than the other 12, though he was different than Matthias, though he admits himself he came a little later on, did fulfill all of those requirements. He did see the risen Christ, and the risen Christ actually discipled him. We see that in Acts chapter 1, 21 and 22, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1. He was called by Christ himself, Acts chapter 9. He was able to demonstrate those uh, signs of apostleship and do the miracles, 2 Corinthians 12, 12. And so Paul acknowledges that though maybe on the surface, based on the original criteria in Acts, he didn't qualify, he certainly did qualify later on, specifically because of what Jesus did with him. He was a capital A apostle. Though the primary ones were the 12 and Matthias, Paul was right up there with them. He was equal. Just a quick note on this in case you're a careful student, you might notice others are referred to as apostles. For example, Barnabas or James, Timothy, Silas. Uh, these men in some cases were either referred to or implied to be apostles as well, but they didn't meet the same criteria, so 
you can call them an apostle, but more in the general sense of being sent. They were missionaries, they were sent ones. They weren't the capital A apostles. And there's no need for those apostles anymore, the capital A kind of apostles, because the revelation is complete. Everything they were sent to do has been completed. They were sent to bring God's word to God's people, to write the Bible that you have in your hand, the New Testament. It was expected that God's revelation would come after his deliverance and after his law was granted. That's why we don't have these gifts at work today. There is no legitimate Holy Spirit wrought gift of speaking in tongues or different languages necessary today. There are no miracles of healings despite what some so-called churches even in our county claim to be able to do. There are no miraculous raising from the dead and other signs to prove apostleship because the apostles' work is finished. Scriptures are in your hand. And so Paul begins as he normally does, grace to you and peace. And the fact is we need both. We need grace that pays the debt of sin that we owed and we need to be brought to a place where we've got peace with God. It's it's peace with God that's going to bring us home. It's, it's peace with God that means when he opens the door, you're embraced. And you're embraced because of the work of Christ. And you're welcomed at a seat at the table. You're the one that he runs to greet. The one that has no shame and no fear. The one that can come and can rest. You need peace with God and it only comes through grace. And it only comes through the eternal covenant of redemption that before the foundation of the world was negotiated within the very Godhead so that with absolute perfect unity of purpose and will, it was ordained by God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit chosen of the Father, redeemed by the Son, and His righteousness applied by the Spirit, regeneration. It's a Trinitarian, one God program. And I love the fact that Paul calls God our Father. He calls Him our God and Father, a little bit later on, and then again, our God. emphasizes that the Father is our Father. And it was him and the Lord Jesus Christ who agree that the Father would then choose, the Son would then go. The Son was sent. When we talk about the incarnation at Christmas, sometimes people give you the impression that out of nowhere, Jesus just kind of popped up. He was there all of a sudden on the planet. The scripture says he was sent. So he was in heaven, that's where he lives. It's the boat of God, sent from heaven to earth as the one who from the Trinity would be the agent of salvation on earth. And he came, notice it in verse four, to give himself. That's a a voluntary sacrifice and uh, We'll define that a little bit later in a moment, but that voluntary sacrifice, that giving up of himself, 
everything that the Old Covenant scriptures looked forward to, all of those prophecies, all of that ceremonial law that was wrapped up in Christ when he fulfilled it. And he came for what reason? To give himself for our sins. That is what's necessary. He had to. There was no other way. And to give himself for our sins means that he was not only a sacrifice, but he was a substitute. Not just a sacrifice, but a substitute. He came in our place. And this was prefigured multiple times in the Old Covenant through the sacrificial animals that were killed on behalf of the sinners. You think even about Isaac, remember, who was willing to be killed, and yet God spared him, and instead an animal was found in the thicket, and it was, came, it was brought over, and it was killed instead. There's a substitute. And that substitute is for a reason. Notice, it is to deliver us. Literally to, uh, to pluck us out, to choose to pluck us out, to completely rescue us. Isn't that amazing? It is to deliver us. That's what we needed. A God who could deliver us. Not a God who would clean us up and make us more righteous. Not a God who would inform our minds so that we would have the ability to assent to some higher level of knowledge. We needed a God who would rescue us, deliver us from what? From the present evil age. You're delivered even from the present evil. All your debts are completely paid for. All of your debts. If you're a Christian this morning, if you're a believer, let me, let me remind you of something. Let me remind you of something. Your, your debt, uh, that, that record that was owing to God because of your sin, the, the judgment that would have had to fall on you because of his perfect holiness, that debt is presently, if you are a Christian, presently completely fully paid. You don't live in anticipation of salvation. You live in the present reality of having that debt fully paid. Perhaps you've been in a position in the past where you have had debt, monetary material debt, maybe student debt, maybe car debt, home debt, dumb decision debt. And you've carried around the weight of that. You know what it's like, you're burdened under it. And then maybe you've been freed from that and you've paid it all off and you now know the liberty, the feeling of now living in, in, in this freedom from the debt. Or maybe even better, someone's come along and they've paid that debt for you. Now it's not only freedom, but also an immense feeling of gratitude. Brothers and sisters, that's the attitude that Paul wants to remind the, the, these Galatian Christians to have. That in this present age, regardless of how difficult it is, how evil it is, and it is evil. It is evil now, it was evil back then. But in the midst of it, you live lives as those who are debt-free relative to the fear of judgment for your sin. And as a result, he delivers you not only from this present evil age, but does it according to the will of our God and Father. Isn't that an amazing statement? 
Isn't that amazing? He does it according to his will. Who chose? Did we choose? No, he chose. He made the plan. He was the architect of salvation history. He is the one who chose you. He is the one who brings regeneration. He is the one who is glorified in the atonement. And he is the one who planned and initiated salvation before we even knew we needed it. And that was all of grace. Amen? <sighs> like everything else doesn't seem like a big deal, does it? Everything else just immediately gets put in perspective. And it's his nature to do this. You go back into Genesis and Adam and Eve fall into sin and God, as he is bringing the curse upon the earth, for example, he says immediately that I've got a plan and before you've even asked for it, I am going to make a way of atonement. And he tells the woman that I have already, before the foundation of the world, designed a plan, made a way for an atonement before you even sinned. It is all, verse five, for his glory. Salvation is for his glory. Why? Because he's responsible for it. We bring nothing to the table. We do nothing. He did all of it. So he receives all the glory. We are glory stealers by nature. We're glory thieves. We were like little, we like to go into the glory store and find something small enough that fits in our pocket. We know we can't steal the big stuff, but maybe I can steal a little piece of glory and I'll take that with me and I'll just remember it's there and I'll reach into my pocket and I'll hold on to it sometimes when I'm feeling bad about myself and I'll remind myself, you know, I, I, I have done a few good things. I have done a few things. I have done a few things right. I made a few good choices. I get a little bit of credit for my salvation. Paul says, you get none. You're not allowed to steal his glory. He's going to get it all. And it's going to be his forever and ever. It's the same word, by the way, as up earlier where it says evil age. It's literally ages of ages. He's redeemed you in this present age. He's made you righteous in his sight in this present age. And he's going to get glory in this age and all the future ages and all the ages of ages. It's all going to be for his glory forever and ever. And then he ends by saying, amen. Which should make us say what? Amen. amen. Means truly, I agree. Why do you say amen at the end of a prayer? You ever wondered that? Why do we say amen? It's a word that means truly. It means I agree. You're allowed to say amen. There's a lot of things you're allowed to do in this church that some of you don't do. I don't know why. You're allowed to say amen. You're allowed to talk in church. Thank you. Amen. Amen. Remember the old days when people in the church used to say amen? You know, a preacher would say something, some guy in the back. He was always in the back, that guy. I don't know why. Amen. Amen, brother. You know, our culture is really like subdued. We don't, we don't have a lot of feedback. Preach in some other cultures and you'll get feedback. It's great. Paul's doing this, saying to them, amen. The reader of this letter says, amen. The reader of this letter says, all of this is true. All of it has been given to you forever by one God, one Father, one Son, one Holy Spirit, inter-Trinitarian covenant to choose and redeem and bring to himself 
those who are his, that he might receive all the glory forever and ever as he looks upon them clothed in the holy righteousness of his son, knowing that his penalty, that our penalty was paid in full by him. So that he does not violate his own justice by allowing us into his presence. In fact, he glorifies his own justice by saying they have been invited in because the penalty has been paid in full. Account balance, zero. But it gets better. It's not just account balance zero when it comes to sin. It's account balance infinite when it comes to righteousness. Not only is the sin paid, but the righteousness is deposited. And that's the righteousness that we live in. So, one God, number two, one gospel. Paul now, in light of everything that he just said, has to turn to them. And he has to give a true confession. He says, I am astonished. He doesn't say I'm angry, he doesn't say I'm furious. I'm astonished. This is the feeling of walking into the room parents, and surveying and witnessing the situation in the room after you have left the child there for a period of time sufficient for them to do something that can be described as nothing but astonishing. You walk in and you look around and, and your thought is, I don't even have words. Like, like, what have you done? I'm not necessarily angry. I mean, in a sense, this is so incredible, I'm almost impressed. Like, look what you've done. I left you here for five minutes. I, I, I don't have the words, I'm astonished. That's what Paul is saying. I, I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, I'm heartbroken, I'm angry, I'm confused. Like, what are you thinking? It's amazing that, that, that the ancient commentators even note this. Guys like Martin Luther and his amazing commentary on Galatians repeatedly points this out. He says, Paul's heart is not one of being angry at them. He, he's just completely awestruck. Why? Look at what he's confused about. That you are so rapidly, rapidly, just for a moment, your, your translation might say quickly, I like the word rapidly because it's the word we get our English word tachometer from. You know how in your car you've got those two dials? One is the speedometer and one is the tachometer? You don't know what I'm talking about, do you? You're like, yeah, I ignore both of those all the time. Some of you are like, yeah, I've got an electric car. I don't know, just like a battery power thing. I don't know what you're talking about. Okay, well, if you drive, if you know anything about cars and, and, and you've got an internal combustion engine, you have this thing called a tachometer, and, and it says the RPMs down there, and that's how many revolutions per minute the motor is giving you, and it's going faster and faster and faster when you put your foot down on the gas, generating more and more and more. That's the idea here, the rapidity of it. It's going faster and faster and faster and faster, and it's like Paul is saying, I'm absolutely astonished that you've got your pedal to the metal when it comes to what? Deserting him. You have gone the other way, and you are flooring it. I mean, your tires are spinning, and you are moving as fast as you can in the opposite direction. He says, I just don't even know what to say. 
You're literally turning yourself away. That's what you could say the word deserting means. You could translate it that way. You're turning yourself away and going in the other direction. You're transferring yourself from the train going north to the train going south. And the one that you're deserting is the one who has called you in the grace of Christ. Called you in the grace of Christ. He's the one who made the invitation. And I believe that he is talking generally to believers here because he wouldn't call unbelievers those who are called. There's the general call that goes out to everybody, but I think he's more specific here. I think he's talking about those who are really called. I, I think even believers, genuine believers, can get wrapped up in some pretty messed up teaching if they're not careful. And it's kind of tempting because as we'll see in the weeks to come, uh, one of the best ways to get tender-hearted Christians to embrace false doctrine is to give them a list of things to do. They love that. And so he says that you are the ones who are called in the grace of Christ. The original doesn't say and are turning. It just says called in the grace of Christ to a different heteron, opposite a different gospel, an opposite gospel. And then he quickly inserts this in verse seven, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you. There is no other gospel, but there are some, and I do think they were in the midst, there were some, and they were seeking to trouble you. It's a word that means to stir up or to agitate, to shake up. They're shaking you up, they're dislodging you, they're stirring you up. And the way they do that is that they want to distort the gospel of Christ. Now please look down at that word distort. It only appears three times in the New Testament. It means to reverse something. It's used in Acts 2 verse 20 of light becoming darkness. It's used in James 4 9 of laughter becoming mourning. And it's used here to talk about the true gospel becoming something that is not able to save. It's been turned around and it's now inside out. But, verse eight, strongest contrast possible in the Greek language, underline it, highlight it, but, he says this, I'm gonna recover this thing, I'm gonna grab it in midair, we're gonna go the other direction. He says, even if we, we being the apostles, the missionaries, Lest there be any confusion, he says, even if we, or an angel from heaven, and that's the word angel, angelos, it's the word that means a divine angel, a holy angel, an angel from heaven would be a good angel, even if a good angel, a holy angel, were to come, or if another teacher were to come, and even an apostle or an angel were to preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, meaning a gospel that adds anything to it or a gospel that takes anything away from it, that steals your assurance, and that's what false gospels do. You always know you've got a false gospel if you struggle with assurance. Whatever it is gonna do that would distort it, even if it comes from us or an angel from heaven, notice what he says at the end of verse eight, let him be accursed. That's strong language. If you've been around for long or you've read much in church history, you've come across a term called anathema. You familiar with that term? Something's anathema. Uh, those of us who are Protestants, 
Uh, we have all been anathematized by the Roman Catholic Church at one of their councils because we believe in justification by faith alone in Christ alone, by grace alone. We're under the ban, we're under the curse. To be anathemized was to be damned. You don't go around saying, God damn you. You do that, you're gonna get in trouble. You do that in my house, you'll get in trouble. And if you do that around my mother, it doesn't matter how old you are, she'll beat you right there. <laughs> do not speak like that. I had to practice saying that because I almost couldn't do it. Hope you're not offended, but that's what it says. It's an evoking of eternal damnation. And you don't speak that way about people. You don't say that to people who have a slightly different take on something and go to a different church because they're part of a different denomination. You don't call down an anathema on somebody because they baptize babies and you don't, if they believe the gospel. Or because they do something in their church that you don't do. Or believe some secondary or tertiary doctrine, it doesn't matter what their views on eschatology are. These aren't things that are going to, to completely destroy the gospel. So Paul is not saying, okay, Galatians, I want you to conform to what I think this is supposed to be like. He is saying, these people who are attacking you are attacking the very gospel. His attitude is not to just go after and, and damn people who don't agree with him. And I know this because in other passages, he says as much. If you want to, you can look at it or you can just listen. If you go over a couple of books in your Bible to Philippians, it couldn't be clearer. Paul says that he's in jail, he's undergoing this horrible persecution, uh, he's kind of depressed, there's lots of things going on that are hard for him. He'd love to be out on the field, but he's been benched by God for some reason and held up in this prison. But he says something in Philippians chapter one that is so shocking. Beginning in verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. That's all I cared about. So that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. But then notice this, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. Envy and rivalry. I told you earlier, pastors can be sort of an insecure bunch, building their own kingdom and preaching their own messages and trying to build their own crowd. He says, there are some out there, they're doing it from envy and rivalry, others out of goodwill, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel, but the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So let's think about this for a moment. You've got people out there who are preaching the gospel and they're doing it out of envy and rivalry and selfishness and ambition and with an effort to afflict the apostle Paul while he's in prison. And what is his response to them? He says in verse 18, what then? only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in that I will rejoice. Paul says, I will literally rejoice even if the preacher is not a very good person and has bad motives, but they're preaching a pure gospel. All I care about is the pure gospel turn that on its head, and Paul says here, I don't care how moral you are or how competent you are or what a good speaker you are, if you're not preaching the gospel, 
may you be accursed. And if I stop preaching the gospel, may I be accursed. And so, just to make his point clear in verse 9, as we have said before, so now I say again, this is a literary device of repetition. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. One God, one gospel. If you preach another gospel, not only do you lead people astray, but you run the risk of building another church, and it's not Christ's church. You know, you've got, for example, the church of submission, I like to call it. This is the church of follow our example, come under our umbrella of authority, so we can protect you. Just conform to us, you'll be accepted, your life will be better. Don't trust anyone else because we know what's best for you. We hold the key to interpreting the Bible. Let us do that for you. This is absolutely the opposite of what scripture teaches. There is only one authority, that is God. There is only one authority and that is his word. We don't submit ourselves to man-made structures in a gathering of people not too far away from here. Their website reads under their statement of beliefs, quote, our pastors hold the interpretive authority on the Bible's meaning and application in regards to doctrine, practice, policy, and discipline. Wrong. That's another gospel. Uh, no man holds authority over the scriptures. We all submit to the scriptures. Nobody is able then to exercise authority over you because they hold the sole interpretive gifts and what they say goes, meaning however they interpret the Bible is then imposed on you and you've got no recourse. That's a church of submission. What about a church of surrender? Sometimes this can be taught, it's somewhat popular, you know, give your life to Christ, choose to be a child of God, adopt a new lifestyle, reject a current one, commit to purity. The problem with this isn't so much the outcome, the problem is the starting place. The starting place is not based on the power of Christ and the gospel, the starting place is based on man. Raise your hand, walk an aisle, pray the prayer, do whatever it takes to feel the weight of your own sin and failure and then quote unquote, ask Jesus into your heart. What is that? This isn't the gospel. This isn't imputation. This isn't an understanding of the finished work of Christ being applied to you in terms of his propitiation and paying for the debt that you owed and his imputation of righteousness, act of righteousness in fulfilling the law. It's man-centered. What about the church of service? Service is considered that clear sign of fruitfulness. So you know you're in one of these places when everyone around you keeps saying, where are you serving? Why aren't you serving? Which places again the emphasis so much on doing versus worshiping and it inadvertently creates a church of busy little Marthas and not very many Marys. It's often based on a dangerous teaching that implies some kind of reward system in heaven. You need to avoid any system I believe, of discipleship that is based on reward. By contrast, proper service is done 
voluntarily, without compulsion, joyfully, without grumbling, generously, without contempt. Yes, we serve. We use our gifts. Of course we do. Please, don't hear me say don't serve. If that's what you heard me say, please unhear that and hear this instead. It's wonderful that you serve. We need people to serve. We need people serving in children's ministry. We need people serving in all kinds of things around here that would help make this an easier uh, process on a Sunday. But what I want you to hear is that if you replace what you do and how you serve with what you're really called to do in worship, it shows a distorted perspective. And there are some people who would rather serve than worship. They'd rather be out there doing something than in here worshiping. And that's why we as a church are so careful to make sure that you spend as much time as you can in here with the body of Christ worshiping and still have opportunity to serve outside of that. The gospel is the good news that your sin debt has been paid in full by faith alone and the righteousness of Christ imputed to you by grace alone. And so a proper understanding of justification is atonement based on that imputed righteousness of Christ and your imputed sin to Christ. Don't corrupt the gospel by trying to merit grace with good works or define grace as good works, something that precedes your salvation. Good works are essential. That's not up for debate. But they're evidential of what has already happened. So what do we do? Well, especially as it relates to evangelism, what do we do as it relates to even preaching the gospel to our children? You know, we're going to have a baby dedication here next Sunday. It's going to be great. We're going to have, I think, six little babies up here. How, how do we teach parents to evangelize their, their kids? If these other methods aren't biblical, then what is? Well, I believe it starts for them or anybody is that you pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, God would choose to give them regeneration. That's an act you can't do. That can only be accomplished by the Holy Spirit. And then we look for evidences of knowledge, for evidences of belief. That's why you take them through a proper study, teach them doctrine, teach them the truth so they've got it in their minds. And is there an awareness of it, a belief in it, an obedience to it, and then invite them into that active confidence in the finished work of Christ. You prepare them and yourself you have to remember that while you're in this flesh, there's going to be a battle until the end. Your flesh is not sanctified. Your soul is sanctified once and for all when God places you out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. But your fleshly body is still cursed. It is still going to challenge you until your dying day. And it might be harder for you. Paul says the outer man is fading away. The inner man is getting stronger. But that outer man continues to fade away and it may even be harder for you down the road as you battle disease and pain, illness, Alzheimer's, whatever comes upon you in this dying flesh. So remind yourself that your ultimate assurance is not what you're going to do in this body, but in the gospel that promises you a resurrection body where you'll spend eternity in the new heavens, the new earth with your glorious savior and in his presence in absolute, perfect holiness and joy. Amen? Amen? Now we can sing to that. Father in heaven, as we open up our voices now,
to sing in response to what we've heard from your word. I pray that it would come from hearts that have been re-energized to consider these truths of the gospel. Give us enough humility to confess the areas where we have added to the gospel. Help us to repent and turn from that and hold fast and true to the simple, pure gospel of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.